Hello there, welcome back. Um, you have been listening to Emily Baldoni talking through the ultimate um, four albums of love. And and hopefully, as has been mentioned on the previously, previous one, you have been driving through the Midwest or the mountains and found that this podcast is an excellent way to pass your time or even do, washing the dishes in Manhattan. Um, still seems weird that that is the sound people hear when they're doing these things, but hey, whatever. Um, okay, we are back with the same people, Gavin, Emily, Nick, and Paul, and we are moving on to the latter half of Love's career. On a previous pod, uh, Jeffrey Lewis mentioned that double albums were usually the first sign that a band had run out of ideas. We can't give you more quality. We're going to give you more quantity. Um, And we've got Out Here in 1969. Emily, it's a double, right? It's a double. There's a lot to it. And actually, uh, you know, this had all been recorded in the same sessions as the previous album for sale. And it's, it's one of those deals where the previous album was the last um, album in the record contract with Electra. So Electra got to pick the tracks that they want. That's what went on the previous album. And then out here were all the rest, which went to Blue Thumb and they released. Um, I think you could probably argue that the, the better tracks went to Electra, like Electra chose, chose well. With that said, I think it's there are still some real highlights, but it's just it's an incredibly long album, and it is not it is not all um, ultimate in the uh, the uh, the quality sense necessarily. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 baggy and not baggy in the sort of early nineties type of way, it, and it's it seems to be all over the shop. I mean, this was nineteen sixty nine, right? So this this was Woodstock year, right? And well. And Love could have actually had the opportunity to play at Woodstock. Um, they were asked, and Arthur Lee was like, no, I don't want to go for, like, one gig, basically. <laughs> um, so yet another in a series of, of questionable decisions made. Um, Paul, um, musically, I mean, okay, first of all, I'm going to ask, ask you the obligatory how's the drumming question. Well, that's kind of clouded by the track Doggone, which is – the. I, 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 Seriously, amongst the worst 12 minutes of my life, I think, listening to Doggone, that drum solo is just, it's interminable, isn't it? It's you just when you think it's over, he hits one more drum. And um, does anybody, has anybody here listened to that more than once? Seriously, I, I mean, have, yes. I, 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 I listen to it more than once, but it's, it doesn't get any less interminable. <laughs> <if it is. laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, God knows, Paul. Is there such a thing as a good drum solo? There is. I'll tell you a good drum solo, and it's uh, moving away from the pulse beat by Buscocks. Buscocks, yeah, yeah. Because he basically plays the same thing he plays when the rest of the music's playing. So that's a good drum solo. That Um, is a good drum solo. Yeah, yeah, that's the only one, as far as I can see. That's it. That that is the only good drum solo. Maybe the down in the tube (laughs) station at midnight live, but that's that's quite good. But it's very very short. I mean, that's the key, isn't it? Surely that's a place for drum solos. Like and and most sort of extended solos is live. Don't put it on the record. Yeah, well, if there is a place for drum solos, but I'm not sure there is. I mean, but also it seems such an odd place to put it in that particular track. If you listen to it, I mean, it's hard. You, you tend to forget the rest of the track once you're deep in the drum solo. But if you were to go back and listen to the bit of the track that isn't drum solo, which is about ten percent of it, probably less, it's quite a whimsical little number. And then it's got this big drum solo appended to it. it doesn't belong there at all. I mean, I don't know where it would belong, but that in particular seems wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's really put on, isn't it? Supposedly, like, so George Saranovich, who was the drummer at this point in time, like, if you, 
um, apparently everyone in else in the band was like, oh, George is, he's so, he's, he's really technically skilled. Like, oh, this is the best drummer that love has ever had. And like, he saw it as a, the drums as like a melodic instrument or, or something. So this was like the chance for him to, to showcase his, his, his stuff. That's but the I acid agree. talking, it, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the acid, maybe the cocaine, I was hard to say. Um, okay. So we've touched on it. Um, and we touched a, a little bit earlier on about how there were various band members and at the time heroin, um, and how that was causing maybe some issues with the band. Um, were the band in a good place at this moment with their contractual obligations everywhere, turning down Woodstock, etc.? I mean, I th- I think that um, I think that it was a difficult period. It's I mean, in terms of the specifically the like the drug abuse stuff, it's 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 not quite reached the the meter of that yet. But um, I think that, I think it was difficult because I think um, you know Arthur Lee. He got this new band together and um, they're still like gigging around LA, but people were sort of like, why are you, why are you playing in this completely different style? Like they got, they did get some good reviews of the live shows at that time, but there were a lot of people who were just, I think were thrown off by the, you know, that transition from more folk rock and like psychedelia into a more kind of heavy blues rock style. So I think it was, you know, it was disappointing for Arthur Lee. Cause I think this is the point where from being very much like, kind of like, you know, this Kings of the Sunset strip sort of thing, it's starting to, his stars starting to descend a little bit. Okay, so like he, he, it was basically the classic big fish in a small pond and then when suddenly people started to look at him, uh, things sort of started to spiral out and go a little bit wrong. Um, Gavin, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just imagining after after your love for album number three that this is just a steady decline, right? Is there anything yeah. that you want that gets you from this one? Not, not so much. It's mostly filler, very little killer, isn't it? This one. Um, this, I mean, when we talked about for sale, I think you said you know there were some missteps on it after Forever Changes. That this has just got so many missteps. It's it's kind of spun around on itself about seven hundred and twenty degrees. There's um, Discharge, which is like a weird nursery rhyme kind of tune about leaving the army, which is just bizarre. And uh, Car Lights on in the daytime blues, like a campfire tune. Thankfully, no drum solo in either of those. But there's a couple of good tunes. Standout is is decent. It's a bit mm-hmm. kind of Hendrixy, yeah. um, but it's got a good chugging riff to it, and you know it's got it's got something to it that a lot of the album doesn't have. Um, but yeah, on the whole, it just feels when you're listening to it, you feel like you've been listening to it for days. You know, it, <laughs> how long is it? About an hour and around it's about th- an hour, isn't it? It's three weeks long. This album, but it feels like three <laughs> weeks, exactly. Yeah. And that thing about the drum solo, I had the same notes about, you just think it's finished and you're like, oh, thank God. And then he's back again with it. There's a bit where he tunes the drums while he's playing them. What is that? (laughs) I I just wanted to say, though, like, um, you know, I mentioned that the the debut album was 16 tracks and 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. This one's only 17 tracks. (laughs) So it's not like, you know, in the actual song for song. It's not that many more tunes than their debut album, which is, you know, pithy and on point. And then this is, um, yeah. But it's, I think a lot of the best stuff, the stuff I liked the most, was actually on on the like second side of the second record. Mm-hmm. So where most people mm-hmm. have probably given up. Right. But there are some good songs buried in there. And there's kind of a game we often end up playing in the Temporary Fandoms group where when you get these long, turgid double albums where someone will say, if you just edit it down, there's a good record in here. And then everyone will start posting their alternate track listings. I'm not sure I can be bothered to do that with this, but (laughs) I'm willing to bet that there is a lot better album in here if you could be bothered to sequence it properly. Well, also, surely, I mean, if this came from the same recording sessions as as their last album, 
maybe there's a whole sequencing that could be done by looking at the two as a whole. That could be great. Them. Yeah, yeah. If you took like the best tracks, and even you know, I agree with what Nick was saying about like actually like the back half of the second album as like it has Willow Willow on it, which is a beautiful little yeah, um, yeah Willow Willow like, once I singled out. But it took me years to discover that song because I like I would try with this album and I would be like, <laughs> I would, my patience would be exhausted. But this is one of the things <laughs> where like listening on something like Spotify doesn't do it any favors, is it? Because when you've got mm-hmm. a double album and you just listen to this like hour of music end to end. Whereas, like a double album on vinyl, it forces you to take breaks. It's twenty I minutes. Vi- I don't think vinyls. I don't think that the, the vinyl is the one. I think it's tape. I think when cassette died, be- the idea of being forced to listen to the, the second side of an album died with it. With vinyl, you could always just put on side oh, yeah. one. With tape, you're at work or school or uni or wherever. You're about to go home, and your tapes at the start of side two. You've got to get a pen out and like swiggle it around a little bit or press press rewind for half an hour so you would listen to side two (laughs) and now when cds came about and spotify came about etc the default was to go back to the beginning so tracks like this buried knee deep in side eight or whatever it was um often don't get don't get the looking that they they deserve i mean it's all over the place i mean i think at the a lot of their albums the band seems like three different bands and they don't really know what band they want to be, right? I mean, there's there's a there's a bluesy bit, there's a pop bit, there's a sort of Jefferson airplane uh, type of bit, and then there's Jimi Hendrix bit. I, and I almost wonder if that that's that's kind of like a little bit of it is is Arthur Lee's sort of like he's kind of omnivorous, omnivorous in some ways in terms of like musical styles. Like he liked to try out lots of different types of things. And you know, in the early albums, you sort of hear it from album to album, kind of like changing different styles. But yeah, when you get into this period, it's 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 like five different things. Right? Yeah, and I think that only album. gets worse as it goes on. They, mm-hmm. not, if worse is the right way of putting it, because it's I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing on later albums, but they uh-huh. it does jump around from genre to genre. Mm. Yeah. In every record. Okay, well, um, that was a bit of a letdown. <laughs> but <laughs> but but um let's go move on to the very aptly titled Full Start, 1970. We've had the Hendrix references in the past. Mm-hmm. Here we've actually got Hendrix on the opening track. It's it's a great Great, great first track. Uh, what, Everlasting? Yeah. Um, Everlasting um, first, yeah. Everlasting first, great first track. I did write down, how do you follow it? And then wrote down, you don't, because you then have this substandard <laughs> track called Flying. <laughs> which that, is just... fl- flying reminds me of the theme to Minder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jimi Hendrix playing I Could Be So Good For You with Dennis Waterman <laughs> is now my oh. dream. <laughs> That's a dream team, isn't it? That, that's a mashup. I want some. <laughs> A listener, if you if you have any ability to edit things together, please send us a YouTube video of Jimi Hendrix and Dennis Waterman uh, doing the Minder theme tune. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, Emily, um, we've got Hendrix in. Um, it's sort of bluesy, psychedelic pop rock, a bit more of a hard edge at times. It seems like an album that feels like an album, right? Yeah, I mean, I think so... I think the advantage that this has on out here is that, you know, like we were just talking about how sometimes some of these later albums, are they're just all over the place, right? Whereas I, I think that um, False Start is, it's, it's more consistently mostly one one thing, um, although that's not, it's not universally true, but it's, it's kind of the most full um, kind of foray into that kind of harder sounds, that sort of more kind of hard blues rock sound. So I feel like it, 
it kind of depends on how much that is that is your thing, how, you know, how much you get out of it. Um, I mean, I agree. I think the Everlasting Verse is by far the it's the best track on on the album, and I, I find some of the rest of it enjoyable. But I do have to say that that is it's not my favorite version of Love, and in part because I, I don't always have the most patience for that particular kind of of kind of heavy blues rock. Cool. No, that, that sounds good. Um... Oh, I mean, it's a, you were in a band that evolved over many years while you were there and, and, and after you left, and the sound stayed the same yet changed, yet was always seemingly essentially the, the same recognisable core. To paraphrase John Peel. Yeah, yeah. I'm paraf- no, I'm paraphrasing you, paraphrasing John Peel. Ah, okay. <laughs> I never listened to John Peel talking about the four. I only heard you talking about John Peel talking about the four. <laughs> Rabbit it was different. I'm listening to you Peel's. talking about him talking about John Peel talking about <laughs> Anyway, it's come full thank circle. you, Nick. Paul, yes. at, being in a band that managed to keep a, an identity while still bringing other things in, um, what do you think went wrong with Love at this point? I mean, they've had different influences. They, they can't quite get the balance right. The lineup's changed a few times. Are they, Is there anything you can put your finger on? Are they not one of those things where not, there's nobody next to him Telling him don't be so stupid is it? You know you kind of get that, don't you, with bands where you get to a point where nobody who deals with him has got the enough clout to say that's a terrible idea, Arthur. Don't do that. I, I think, think that's a lot of it. I, I agree with you about that because I think at this point, like you know, it's it's not they're not session musicians. Like they are, it's the same band, the same lineup for the most part as the previous album or two, but. Um, it's kind of easier at this point for Arthur to just fire people if if he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't like what they're doing. Um, it's not as much of like an organic thing, and so I think there's not as many people to kind of push back against him or like offer other influences. Can I just ask uh, Emily when, when was um, Arthur Lee's first solo album, and how did he make the distinction between a solo album and a love album? What's the difference? I think it might in part be sort of the the the. Um, the terms that he came to with whatever record company was offering him the deal. So um, that's at least part of it. So his, his first solo album comes out um, a couple years after this, I believe it's 72. Um, okay. someone, I should fact check myself <laughs> about that, but it's a couple years. No, it's no, between, no, you're right. Um, yeah. It's between this one and the, the next right. one. And so I think he had gotten a, a record deal that was, was a solo deal. Um, and that's part of it. So could it have been also, yeah, that he was just kind of like, getting a bit disillusioned with love and love didn't seem to be quite working out for him. So he tried to do it on his own, even though essentially that's what he was doing anyway. I mean, it's, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really know the answer because then he did end up going back into the studio again, like not yeah. long after that to record, like the black beauty sessions are only a year or so after, um, after the first solo album. Oh. Well, well, let's move, let's move on to that because um, in, in terms of actually released albums, you've got full start and you've got real to real, which were the order they sort of came out. But in between those, um, he did two solo albums, recorded a bunch of love albums, which didn't come out at the time. One of which being black beauty, um, which was 1973. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how did it, why did it not get, was it, was it this, Studio not laying it out? Was it the record company? Was it just him? Uh, I think that the main issue is that the the record company that he had made the deal with, it was a small independent label and they folded before it could be released. So in this, this you know, there are lots of cases where, you know, it's kind of Arthur and in this case, in this case it's not. So it's legitimately um, bad luck in this case, which is kind of an interesting contrast to actually, you know, um, 
right before the solo record, um, he'd gone into the studio uh, to try to make another love album. And everyone was just so um, like he was like super coked up at the time. Everybody, everybody, all the musicians were just kind of a mess um, and the sessions were a mess and that album ended up getting scrapped altogether. So this is um, in this case, it's, it's another case of like a lost love album, but it's, it's due to outside forces. Okay. So, yeah, so he went off, he made um, first song up was Vindicator in, yeah. in 72 and then for black beauty um, gets an all black lineup uh, in terms of musician wise, this was going to be his, Sort of big comeback album, um, funk. It's a it's a funk album at times. Um, he's he's brought another genre in to try and juggle. Um, whether he does it well enough or not, it's hard to tell because this album was released what a few years ago now, like probably in the last nine years or so. So obviously it wasn't necessarily uh, in the form it would have been released at the time. Um, is it any good? Yeah, I think so. Well, it's it's there's at least two or three songs on this that are I think probably as good as he ever did um can't find it it's great it sounds like yeah. prince doing purple rain or uh, and uh, skid is really 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 good as well i mean it kind of tails off doesn't it i don't think there's enough momentum there but i think there's some re- it's a lot better than listening to that double album let's put it that way <laughs> um, there's no the person that likes beep beep i don't hate it but i think it sounds out of place <laughs> yeah it does i don't well, think I it works it really in context it sounds it's like the theme from Arthur. The cartoon, not not the not the Dudley Moore, the cartoon. You know, hey, what a wonderful kind of day. It's like that. Um, I'd I'd love to, by the way, have a talk to you about having a spin-off pod series where Paul Hanley talks about what's what what old soundtracks the various songs sound like. Because <laughs> I could never, I could never. Oh, Danger Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be true. I can't, I can't force it. It has to be true. <laughs> um, okay, so. So, putting back on track, um, Black Beauty didn't come out. It uh, wasn't released. I mean, it's a great little funk album. There's there's a lot going on in there. But what did get released um, was Real to Real, which is essentially the last proper love album, right, in uh, 1974. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, sound, it seems like Arthur Lee had his final big chance, uh, a, a record exec, took a shine to him, gave him uh, the biggest advance he'd ever had for an album. Uh, he, they'd, they'd gone touring, supporting mm-hmm. like Clapton and Lou Reed. I mean, this this is his moment. He's bound to take it, right? Well, I mean, I, so I think it's in terms of the album, the music itself, I I like Real Real a lot, actually. Um, it's the same... Um, it's the same uh, like kind of core band for the most part. And then they had some additional studio musicians who came in and did a lot of like the horn parts and things like that. Cause it is sort of a, it's a bigger sound on this album. It's continuing that kind of trajectory towards funk. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's more, more instrumentation, et cetera. Um, so in terms of music, I, I, I like it um, in terms of whether it rehabilitated his career. No, <laughs> it really didn't. Um, and you know, that he also, what he went on all these, these, you know, these touring dates around this time, um, which were not incredibly successful. And again, it's, it's starting to enter kind of a bad period for him, um, in terms of he's, he's, he's doing a lot of Coke. Um, and he's like, he's shooting it, which I didn't even know was a thing you could do. Um, <laughs> and I'm a librarian. I don't, what do I know about drugs, but I thought it was rife um, in librarian circles. <laughs> no okay <laughs> they're all free base all free basing meth or 
Um, right, this was the 70s. What was it called then? Angel Dust PCP? Whatever they said in the movies. Um, I, I spent my entire childhood not knowing what Angel Dust was. It was just some American drug that made people jump out of windows. Um, okay, so he was he was shooting, snorting, burning, burning the cocaine. Lots of things, yeah. Uh, and he was also, this is also the period where he's... Um, uh, or slightly before this, up to up to around this time, he was kind of like a very militant vegetarian um, in the early seventies as well. Not to say that that's because of the cocaine. There are plenty of good reasons for for vegetarianism, but there's just these like crazy stories about things he would do, like um, like he would go to like a, a market, like a supermarket, with um, a cattle prod under his coat, and then um, just strangers at the meat counter, he would like get them with the cattle prod and say things like don't eat the dead things like that I mean, so. who, among, who amongst us haven't done that come on <laughs> <laughs> so he's sort of like an, a more militant version of morrissey oh god that's christ <laughs> <laughs> um, gavin gavin how has the, how has the decline of of a band that given you one of your favorite albums of all time there's surely some respite here yeah i I like this album more than the last kind of three or four. It feels like, you know, what the Ruttles were to the Beatles, the last three or four albums were <laughs> like that with Hendrix. You know, it's kind of like Aldi Hendrix. Um, <laughs> this new direction, I, I like. Um, there's some nice soul horns in there. There's a few kind of Otis Redding kind of tunes. Um, and there's just a nice energy to it again after a lot of the others, you know, the last few albums have been kind of a bit sludgy and turgid and lumpy. and this has got a bit of spirit again in it and, you know, a bit of air in it. And um, yeah, again, a nice, a good first tune on the album again, which had been lacking on some of the other ones. And uh, the final track I think is brilliant. Everybody's got to live. Was that on? Yeah. And that was on his solo album, wasn't it? A version it was, of that, was it? There's a version of it on Vindicator on his first solo album, but it's, it's, it's kind of more, um, it's a, it's a heavier version. It's like electric and it's, whereas this is very stripped down i think it actually came about kind of on on accident he was just playing it on an acoustic guitar they started like recording it and he was like wanted to get rid of it but it ended it did end up yeah on the it's album nice i think it's a much better it, it's a great tune yeah yeah, yeah it's to, i i like it's it's become over the years one of my one of my favorite love tracks actually i just think like his singing is great on this album like in general um yeah it's got a lovely kind couple, of soul kind of a soul voice yeah. on this album, hasn't he? Yeah. And, it, and it's good. Yeah, he's um, got an amazing voice. I mean, throughout the mm. career, that was one of the things that struck me listening to yeah. all the records is, is Arthur Lee's voice is, is something pretty special. You know, in a kind of quite a, I don't know how to put it, an obtrusive way. Like, it's not obvious, but when you listen to so much of it, you just say, this guy, he's got, there's something special about his voice. Oh, his, his voice was great. And he also could write a good pop hook. Um, the problem was other, he wrote other stuff that went with that. Yeah, but you could probably, uh, from every single album, pluck out a track that would yeah. that's a really good piece of songwriting. Totally. I, think, um, I was going to say on that, for me, the problem is that, you know, the shadow of Forever Changes is so large. And if I was doing a C90 compilation of my favourite love stuff, one one side would be Forever Changes, and then there'd be one or two tunes from the other albums, you know. But, but there are still those, like you say, there are still those tunes that are... Oh, good. Well, well, luckily for the the Spotify listener who's listening to the, the playlist, there's a pretty equal distribution of songs from from all the albums, <laughs> um, rather than just just slapping on forever changes. In that in that way, some people they go, "Here's a playlist." You go, "It's not a playlist. You've just put a hundred out, hundred songs in a folder." Although, <laughs> <There's> no- <laughs> I feel like we talked about "Doggone" for so long that I I should put it on the included on the playlist. Oh, please no? Do. Yeah. No? No? No. no, 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 yeah, put it on, yeah. <laughs> 
Or we could do that after after the outro. Or, yeah, Are there any re- any remixes available we could listen to? No, <laughs> probably. Yeah. It sort of sounds it sort of sounds like a re- you know that sort of the twelve inch B side extended cut they used to get in like from a lot of bands in the early nineties. Where there's an extra five minutes of nothing. Yeah. Um, it sort of sounds a little bit like that. Here, here, oh, yeah, look, um, and we can't get back to that doggone again, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good time to sort of. Ask the question. Um, so this was the last album, and there was some good stuff in there, and possibly a new direction. But he also had been given a large amount of cash, and apparently snorted, burn whatever it is with the cocaines um, at that time. Um, how did it just end after that? Was he dropped? Did he just lose it a bit? I know later on in his life he had trouble with mental health and say even police issues. But in the seventies. How did he go away? Yeah, I mean, so it's a combination of things. I think, like, he had um, done a few things on the tour and otherwise to um, kind of piss off some of the folks at the at the, the record company. That's um, that combined with the fact that he was he was pretty erratic around this time. Like, I mean, he I think by all accounts he gave some good performances, but it's it you know really just a question of like what what did he do before <laughs> before going on stage. Um, cause some of them were just a real mess. So he continues to, um, to play live around like the LA area for, for quite some time off and on, but it's getting more sporadic and, you know, it's kind of the sort of thing where the, the gigs are becoming kind of just a way to get money, to get the drugs, et cetera. Um, and he's not really, he's not really creating a lot new or being super, super productive at this point. And, you know, it just kind of, it gets, it gets worse in the eighties. And of course, he ends up doing some time in jail. Um, so this is this is the last um, kind of proper love album that ends up getting made. Um, so why is it that some? I mean, it's it's not a particularly easy question to ask, but like with some artists, it's more obvious than others. Um, why is it that some bands with charismatic lead singers seem to make it, and some spiral into only being? Re- getting recognition later on in life. I mean, is it always the quality of music? Because based on the third album, love should have been massive and possibly, or is it, is it back to what say Paul was saying? Nobody was saying Arthur may maybe do this. Did he need just a strong producer? Did he need someone else in the band? I mean, anybody I mean, I, any ideas? I think he, I think he needed someone to kind of push back against him, which he didn't, he didn't have in a lot of the later albums. And again, there is still good stuff, but there's not, someone to, to push back against him. I also think just sometimes it takes music a while to find its audience too. So, um, you know, Forever Changes was not a huge hit when it came out. But but it, but, but it sounds like it should have been then. It sounds mm-hmm. so then. And you look at all the al- other albums that did become big at the end of the late 60s, particularly the ones that came out of the West Coast of America, you're like, well, surely this was one of them. Should okay, so yeah. Um, that was one of the questions I asked that I thought would get a better re- reaction, uh, but didn't. <laughs> well, no, it was. It was. I think the it was ahead of its time, wasn't it? Yeah. It was kind of sixty-seven when the rest of that. You're thinking of sixty-nine, aren't you? Really, sixty-eight, sixty-nine. I think it was a bit too early to be that band. I think. Yeah, I, I suppose there are. There's, there's an awful lot of sort of. 60s psychedelia that uh, there's what's that there's a series of albums that's basically nuggets nuggets albums. yeah uh and it's it could easily have, they could easily be in a band that just appeared on nuggets somewhere Easy. it was too yeah, good and- for that though wasn't it yeah. well i mean now we say that yeah but at the time like they were just sort of chugging yeah, along if there hadn't been forever changes then you know my little red book turning up on a yeah kind of garage compilation they would have just been another one of those bands i guess and but I what do, i find I do it think- 
I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I, I, I do think like uh, the fact that like they wouldn't tour at the point in time when this sort of like they had their yeah, window not of playing opportunity. Woodstock. Not playing Woodstock, not, not touring outside of California in general. Like that, that was the way that they could have become better known what? at that time, you know? Why was that? Because it's not like uh, he, he wouldn't fly to other countries. I mean, he only had to get on a bus to go a bit further afield than Los Angeles. It, uh, why didn't he do it? Do you know? It's. I mean, he did, He was, this sounds like such a, a trite way to put it, by, by all things that I read, he was a real homebody, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> which sounds so sounds so domestic, but he, he didn't like, he did not like to be away from home. He didn't like to eat, like he would go to... San Francisco um, at that time to play because they were always like, treated really well in San Francisco, but he, that was like the limit. Like he wanted to be back home in his own bed um, by the end of the night. Like he didn't want to, he, he, it took a really long time to persuade him to actually do oh. um, gigs in farther away places. And uh, again, I don't, you know, I don't, I also don't want to like gloss over like possibly the racial dynamics of it at the time. Right. To, in yeah. terms of traveling more far away from, you know, yeah, the Southern California and like San Francisco area are a particular ecosystem at that time in terms of certain politics. But was that still? We'd have loved him over here, wouldn't we? I think. I think it'd have been yeah. massive if he'd yeah. come to England. Yeah, I think it, because they even even Forever Changes, which was much more commercially successful um, in England than it was in the United States at the time as well. Do you know when they first came to England? Because there's, there's a lyric on one of the albums or something which I love where he, where he said, when I was in England town. Right. Uh, he had definitely yeah. not been to England yet at that point. Yeah, because that's, that's, that's a quite early one. I think the, the, first, um, the first tour is, I believe it's 1970, I want to say. So it's after the breakup of the initial lineup. Yeah. I mean, they've always been really massive in Liverpool as well. Like I lived in Liverpool in the 90s and, and love and forever changes. Had a real kind of cult following, you know, amongst people there. And um, I know Shaq were sort of a supporting band for him in the in the 90s when he played. And um, yeah, there's a, a real affection for him in, in the Liverpool scene, definitely. Okay. Well, I mean, it's probably a good time to wrap up there. I mean, we had a band who'd, who definitely peaked early. Um, the story was interesting in the, in the second half, but it was like one of the album titles, Lots of False Starts. There's some nice attempts to change sound and a definitely a very charismatic and talented lead singer, but then probably, as we said, one that needed someone to push back on him. Um, like many artists have had over the years, whether they're musicians or whether they're, they're film directors, Spielberg, I'm looking at you. Um, <laughs> they needed some, so at some point, the strong person disappeared and they were allowed to do whatever they want. Um, I think we've got a band that retrospectively have a couple of highlights. I mean, obviously, NME's number one album to hear before you die was, oh, no, it wasn't the <laughs> album we expect it to be. <laughs> um, okay, it has been uh, fantastic having everybody on tonight. Um, obviously, if you're listening to this, um, there will probably be one track, um, we won't mention it, uh, played after the, the, the podcast ends on, on, on Spotify. Um, this is also a perfect time, as I said at the beginning of last episode, to go and leave us a review, please. That would be really great. Um, Gavin, it's been fantastic having you on. It's been lovely being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, Emily, thanks for all your hard work, and we will see you again very soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Paul, been great having you on. Thank you very much. Really and, enjoyed and Nick, it. Yeah, it's been, and also, also, it made. Uh, I think Nick was a bit nervous at the beginning, so it's been, it's, it was quite funny. Um, <laughs> and Nick, all right, cheers. See you later. Bye. <laughs> 
that's another band's career itemized and shelved in its right place. Thank you to our curator, Emily Baldoni, for your engaging introduction to Love's final four albums, and also to Gavin Hogg of Smash Hits Appreciation Podcast, The Giddy Carousel of Pop, and to Paul Hanley, drummer with The Fall and The Extricated, and author of Leave the Capital and Have a Bleeding Guest, both of which are well worth reading. Thanks also to my assiduous co-host Ewan for chairing the discussion and stitching together the resulting mess, and to Jonathan Fisher for our theme tune. And thanks also to you, the listener. We're glad you're out there. Could we trouble you for a review? A few kind words on Apple Podcasts is a tiny gesture that could help us reach more listeners. Please do consider it. We've got another exciting episode coming up next week. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and when I woke up, I took a look around myself, and I was surrounded by 50 million strong. Oh yeah. So around 1993, Arthur Lee was playing a gig in Liverpool, and on that afternoon of the gig, uh, he was doing an in-store signing at the local hour price. He got taken through the back door of the store and into a stock room, which was upstairs, and then they told him just to come down to the counter when he was ready to meet the fans and sign records and that kind of thing. So there's a bit of a wait, and there's quite a few people waiting for him because he's a bit of a legend in Liverpool, but he still hadn't turned up in the shop. So my friend Chris went up to see if everything was all right. To his surprise, once he got in there, he found that Arthur was struggling to climb into the one-metre-square dumbwaiter which linked the stock room to the shop floor and, and carried product up and down between the floors. So Chris helped him out, gently took him by the arm through the door, which had an exit sign above it, um, which somehow he'd missed on his first attempt to leave the room and took him downstairs to meet his fans. And Chris said that Arthur had seemed OK with either option. <laughs>